as, as divisive as everything is right now um, in, in the United States, we don't have a country where a new president comes in and if any of you worked for the former president, you're going to be locked up, you're going to be killed, you're going to be tortured, including your children and your spouses. That doesn't happen here. And it happens every day all around the world. And there are, there are probably 35 people in our church right now that that's their story. You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. This week, we'll hear from Pastor Chris Six on ministering to refugees and asylum seekers. And as always, we'll pray together about what we hear. But first, I want to do something a little different and take a quick minute to share a little bit about some struggles I've been having lately and some lessons I've been learning. I've been reading Judges in my private reflection and devotional time, and a few nights ago I came across a passage I've been turning over in my mind ever since. It's a quick moment when Gideon's on the eve of leading Israel into a battle, and he's looking for assurance about how it will go. So in the night, he sneaks up to an enemy camp, and he overhears two of the men talking about how formidable they think he is, and how afraid they are of the battle that's ahead of them. And then the Bible goes on to say, when Gideon heard this, he worshipped. He overheard people talking about how good he was at his work of leading an army. And his first reaction wasn't to get confident in himself, and it wasn't to, to get puffed up or to go brag about it to other people or share kind of what a cool thing someone just said about him. His immediate reaction to hearing people talk about how good he was, was to worship God for it. That's not the way I think. It's not the way I operate. And I know Gideon was a flawed person. I know he made mistakes, and big ones. And not just in what a lot of us would probably think of as his secular life, but he made major mistakes in what a lot of us would call his spiritual life as well. But this, right there, that moment, that moment where his impulse was to praise God for something that other people were attributing to him, that's a moment of a human heart that's really behaving rightly. And it wasn't false humility. Me, if you give me a compliment, I might say thank you, and I might remember to praise God to you for what he's been enabling, or to talk about how grateful I am for the people I'm working with or who are supporting me or whatever. But there's a part of me, this private part of me, that kind of like stretch out like a dog or a cat when you scratch their back. Like Part of me that's like, oh man, I'm really glad to hear that about myself. But worship was actually, in this moment, Gideon's private reaction. These people weren't talking to him, and he wasn't responding to them. They weren't even aware he was there. He heard it, and he worshipped. He gave us this small glimpse of something that Jesus would end up embodying in full. In my heart, I can give some of the glory to God, but I'm still learning to give all of it to him. He's growing me and he's trending me in the right direction, but I'm still learning. I'm getting better at it, sincerely, but this thing that I'm growing in, this thing that 
Gideon had a moment of modeling so clearly. Jesus is the author of it, the perfecter of it. He guaranteed me and he guaranteed us that we're going to get to follow him in it. And honestly, that, that promise, that guarantee, makes practicing it now a lot easier for me and a lot more exciting. Anyway, that's not really connected to the rest of the episode. It's just something I've been thinking about this week, especially in relation to the work we're doing at Christian Civics. So I wanted to share it just to kind of let you all know where I'm at. (laughs) Moving on, you might have noticed that, yeah, we're a podcast about faith and politics or faith in government or faith in the public square, but we don't actually talk about specific developments in the news very often. Our goal as a ministry is not to change any specific federal or even state level or local policy. Our goal is to enter into a long-term relationship with churches and with our audience members so that we can help you practice your faith better in the public square over the course of your lifetime. We're looking at creating a sustainable, generational change in the way our brothers and sisters exercise their civic authority. While we do want Christians who are plugged into our work to demonstrate what it looks like to think, speak, and act differently in the public square, we think that in light of the fact that God revealed himself to us through incarnation, if we're going to follow him in our civic lives, if we're going to practice the Christian faith in our civic lives, we have to start by practicing it in a similarly incarnate manner. When it comes to politics and government, There aren't a lot of voices out there encouraging you to practice the theology of incarnation, the theology of putting most of your time and energy into the people and places and problems that God has put most immediately in front of you. The kinds of debates that are driving the news and that trend on social media, they're not usually about issues that most Christians can have a direct impact on. Our job, the job of this podcast, isn't to be Christian-branded pundits who are chasing the latest news cycle. All of our work is to help the broad cross-section of Christian citizens in this country grow into the kinds of people that everyone hopes would live in their town. So what we can do in this podcast is help you develop the character that will let you have those neighborhood conversations, those and a town hall meeting conversations better. Getting to the point where you can have those conversations in a healthy way takes a long time and a lot of practice. I'm still working on it myself. And it's a lot easier to start practicing when it comes to issues that are really just affecting your neighborhood or affecting your city or your town. The last reason we don't really generally talk about specific political debates that are happening in the moment, though, It's really just super practical. We don't have the team in place to make this podcast timely. The team we do have is great, and I don't want to embarrass them by like recording an episode about some super specific event in the news and then not be able to get it edited and released for a few months. So instead, we focus on questions that are usually going to be relevant for you whenever you listen to them. At the start of the year, our friends at Ministry to State hosted a forum on the refugee crisis, and one of the speakers at the event was Pastor Chris Six of Alexandria Presbyterian Church. His church has a robust community of refugees and asylum seekers in their congregation, and he shared the story of how that community came together. Ministry to State recorded it and invited us to share it, 
and for months now, I've been planning on releasing it in the late spring or early summer. And while I was working on the last episode, part three of our interview with Dr. Kurt Thompson, I decided that this would probably be the one we release next. It also just happens to be really relevant, again, given the renewed debate surrounding our federal government's treatment of immigrants, undocumented immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. But we're going to forge ahead and release it anyway, because I think there are some inspiring stories in here about how to put biblical principles into practice, and stories of God's church and God's spirit changing lives in very real, very visible, very lasting ways. Toward the end of the talk, I think actually it might be in the Q&A section, Pastor Six shares something that I think is especially hard, but also especially important for us to wrestle with. That idea that he gets to is that Scripture doesn't dictate what governmental policies should be in a diverse, federated, representative, democratic republic, but it does sketch a broad vision for human flourishing that should deeply shape Christians' understanding of what a healthy society looks like and what our broad goals should be as we engage with the public square. And as Pastor Six goes on to point out, one of the moral through lines of Scripture, one of the things Scripture constantly points to as the mark of a spiritually healthy society, is the way that it treats the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner living among you. The reason I wanted to share this talk, even before it became a hot-button issue again, is because, for most of us, we can talk about things going on in other states or talk about things going on in Congress or in D.C., but it can feel disconnected from our real lives, our real spheres of influence. We can't have what Dr. Thompson called embodied encounters with a Senate floor debate or a controversial press conference. And as much as I can coach you, or as much as Christian civics classes can teach you how to start connecting with that more embodied, more local level of government and help you to be a good influence on its tone and conduct, no matter how locally we encourage you to think, none of us, not you, not me, not anyone in our church, are ever going to be able to fully ignore or fully tune out the bigger national debates that are going on around us while we're working on building up our good citizen muscles on the local level. What I like about what Pastor Six shares is that it provides an example of how to look at a debate that's happening on the national level that can feel really disconnected from you, and then connect it to a broad scriptural value, and then actually practice that value in your local community. It's an example of still engaging with the thing that's a big national question, but engaging with it in a hands-on way, having an embodied encounter with it that transcends the very polarized, very heated, big national debate. And doing things like this can even help you react to the big national debate more knowledgeably, more wisely, more realistically. So, I know I usually do all of that contextualization stuff after the main segment, but I really wanted to get it out of the way up front this time because of how newsy this is. I wanted to make sure we're going into this well-prepared to get some of the most valuable lessons out of it that we can. So now let's go to the forum. We're going to jump right in as Pastor Chuck Garriott of Ministry to State introduces the topic and why he thought it was relevant. Then he'll hand it off to Pastor Six, who's going to share his story. 
Then we'll cut straight to Pastor Six's portion of the Q&A that evening and come back together for prayer. And one last note, you're going to hear Pastor Six talk about some photos he had with him as a visual aid. We'll have some of those photos on our website, christiancivics.org, when this episode airs. Feel free to check them out there. And now, here's Pastor Garriott. It could be a famine or some great natural disaster or something of that nature, but but they're not able to live uh, where uh, they, they have in the past, and they have to leave. And uh, if you think about those circumstances, biblically speaking, uh, there are any number of people in the scriptures that come to mind, right? People like Abraham, uh, who were told, who, who had to leave, and uh, difficult circumstances there. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, um, you might say that uh, Jacob... Uh, had to leave uh, because of the famine, and uh, that's what brought uh, him and his uh, his kids uh, down to Egypt because they were looking for for food, and and uh, because uh, his son that he didn't know uh, had done such a great job in in administering the uh, the agricultural side of Egypt, then uh, they found refuge there. Uh, you might say that uh, people like Moses are. Certainly the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt uh, who were under a great deal of persecution had to leave. And in the New Testament, we probably would think about Jesus, uh, our Lord, who was forced to leave and to go to Egypt for a while uh, because of, of the, uh, the threat that he, was, uh, he and his family were under. And, and uh, we could list others. So biblically speaking, the term is not something that, that is strange at all. Uh, so tonight, what I thought would be helpful is that in light of uh, the world in which we live and uh, a lot of discussion, we're not going to get into that tonight in regards to the whole issue of immigration and refugees, uh, I felt like it would be helpful for us to get a picture of what Chris has been doing uh, in terms of refugees so we get that sense, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. So, let me, if I can, if I can segue, have Chris come, and I'm just going to let you go ahead and uh, share with us about your work, and this is a very dear brother and has been an encouragement to many of us, so thank you for being here. Sure, thanks. Um, I'm at Alexandria Presbyterian Church, uh, right over the river, and we've been working with uh, refugees, more specifically um, asylum seekers, for about the last 12 years, and... Uh, it's not something we decided to do. We didn't decide to start a ministry. Um, we just uh, met a young man um, named Guy, um, the, the younger one here in this photo. Guy's from Burundi, and he's a Tutsi, um, and his father's a journalist back there in Burundi, a uh, country where the majority government is Hutu, and his father, the journalist, was writing about some of the uh, mistreatment um, by the government of the Tutsis, and so he became a target um, because of his father's writing. Um, and so after several threats on his life, um, he put Guy on a plane to the U.S. He showed up at Dulles, um, and uh, he had a tourist visa, but he had no money, he had no hotel reservation, he spoke no English, and they were like, you're not a tourist. And he said, yes, I'm actually here because uh, I want to apply for asylum. He said all this through a French translator. And they said, well, you know, you came illegally, and so you're going to go into detention. So he went into a detention facility, 
outside Richmond, and that's where he met a young lawyer in our church um, who had never dealt with anybody like this before. Um, he worked for an energy firm here in D.C., and his boss had just said, uh, you know, we got to do pro bono stuff, so go do a credible fear interview. <laughs> and Kurt's like, what's a credible fear interview? And he's like, I, you know, this organization, Human Rights First, they'll explain it. So Kurt drives three hours down, and he sits down with Guy, um, 19 years old, and through an interpreter, hears his story, and Kurt immediately realizes this young man from South Central Africa was his brother in Christ, that they both loved and knew the Lord. And so Kurt came back very excited about wanting to figure out how to help Guy stay in the United States. Um, and so I ended up going down meeting him, had the same impression um, that this is our brother. And so he ended up spending nine months in detention while his asylum case was going through. And he basically taught himself English there, came out, lived with one of our deacons, got a job with landscaping in our church. And so 12 years later, Guy is a U.S. citizen, graduate of George Mason University. Um, he's about to um, go work with uh, the Peace Corps um, back in West Africa, and he wants to work with um, rescuing uh, child slaves on Lake Volta. Um, and he lived with my family for two years, um, and he's just a, a special guy. And so that relationship with him kind of got us into this whole area of helping these asylum seekers. And asylum seekers are slightly different than refugees in the sense that they don't arrive with any status in the U.S. They're either here as, they come illegally as Guy technically did, because he was a false tourist, or they're here on student visas, or they're here visiting family. Um, this is a family from Iraq whose uh, Christian village was attacked by ISIS. Um, and uh, Suad uh, was widowed in the Iran-Iraq war. Um, her oldest daughter married a U.S. service member that she met at church in Baghdad, um, came to the U.S., had two children, then her husband died. So we have a widow and her two fatherless daughters, and then a widow and her two fatherless children. So are we supposed to think of Ruth and Boaz? Is that... <laughs> yeah. And, Is that good... yeah, and when I spoke to the church about this family, you know, it was one of these things of like, I think a big question that we have in these circles is, in these questions is, well, what about refugee policy, and what about quotas, and what about the law, and what about immigration law, and all these things, and maybe some of you work in a uh, capacity where you have the ability to change our broken immigration laws, <laughs> to work in these capacities. Most people in America, most believers, have no influence over those big things. I think the question that Jesus is asking us is um, not what should the immigration policy be and what are you going to do about the policy, but it's rather to say this man in front of you is in need and how he got here is not really your responsibility. Jesus is asking, what are you going to do about it? How the, 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 the man lying in the road uh, to Jericho and the Samaritan comes by and sees the broken man, what are you going to do about this person in front of you? And that's the question asked of each of us. And that was basically the question that you are asking, not only yourself, but as a leader in your church, your entire congregation, right. and your, your elders saying, you know, regardless of, of policy issues, we have people 
that we know and uh, that we need to know in some cases, yeah. and how can we minister to them? Exactly. So you ended up taking that one example and saying, we're going to develop a ministry. And your, your emphasis, and, and maybe as a, uh, a nuance here, that your, your accent is not necessarily on refugees, but those who are seeking asylum. Is right. that, would that be accurate to say in terms of your... It is. And the distinction being that because um, they don't have legal status yet, they're in some ways more vulnerable. Um, the asylum system is so backed up. Um, I was in court with one young man from Congo um, whose family was all... Perse- it's remarkable how many... Um, times in many of these countries, people are persecuted because of their political affiliation of their family member. Um, as, as divisive as everything is right now um, in, in the United States, we don't have a country where a new president comes in, and if any of you worked for the former president, you're going to be locked up, you're going to be killed, you're going to be tortured, including your children and your spouses. That doesn't happen here. And it happens every day, all around the world. And there are, there are probably 35 people in our church right now that that's their story. That the only reason that they were persecuted, um, there's one young man in our church from Congo. Um, his father was murdered when the new president came in because his father worked for the previous president. Mother was locked up in jail, including his three siblings have been in jail for the last year and a half. And we're talking about a 17-year-old boy a 14-year-old boy and an 11-year-old girl in jail for a year and a half because their father worked for the cabinet of the previous president. Um, And so what we try to do is incorporate people into our congregation. So there's there's a lot of uh, ways you can do outreach and reach out um, and serve in many ways. What we try to do is provide a welcoming community where people come and they worship with us and they grow in their knowledge of, of Jesus. And as we're growing together in community, we're able to address spiritual, emotional, relational, material need. And is there a particular uh, means that you utilize to find these people? So we have relationships with four secular nonprofits in the area that focus on asylum seekers. And they know... And what's fun is that a lot of these social workers are either non-believers. One I know is an atheist, and she tells everybody about what we do because she thinks it's so cool. Um, Because she's got a caseload of like 75 people in her file drawer that she cares deeply about. And she knows that if one of her um, clients is the kind of person who might feel comfortable at our church, and she doesn't even know personally, the social worker, what all that means. But she knows that when people come to our church, they're loved really well. Um, that uh, here from Congo. So the gentleman in the middle next to his wife in the wedding dress, DDA um, was part of a student organization protesting the um, atrocities of the government in Congo, and the government decided he shouldn't live anymore. So um, 20 years old, he was dragged out into the jungle by a um, death squad, and he's kneeling down, Um, with a gun at the back of his head, about to be killed. His wife and four-month-old son are back home and uh, as the soldiers are terrorizing the village. And so his wife and everybody are fleeing. He's out in the jungle, about to be killed. And then the Lord's Resistance Army, these rebels, happen down the trail, and they see government soldiers, and they attack. (laughs) And so while the soldiers and 
the rebels are having this firefight, DDA crawls away through the weeds. <laughs> Somehow gets on a plane to the U.S. with no passport, no visa. I don't even know how he got on a plane, but somehow he gets here. He's now one of our deacons, leading, leading the ministry at the church, and they had never had a church wedding. Their four-month-old son was killed while she fled to Uganda. She lived for two years in a refugee camp in Uganda, nearly died three times of malaria and dysentery. We sent money to the refugee camp for medicine. We reunited them. They now have um, a baby and one on the way. And he's one of three African deacons. These are all deacons in our church. When they did their church wedding, he wanted all the deacons to be with him uh, in their wedding. Um, so it's become something that our whole church family um, is able to participate in, this family from Ethiopia. Um, and I just love, like, so this, um, the family that's with them um, basically adopted we asked them to adopt Daniel, who was a federal judge in Ethiopia, um, persecuted, fled, made his way mostly by on foot from Ethiopia to South Africa. Wow. If, wow. if you can picture wow. that. That's a long way. Yeah, that, that's like Florida to Alaska. Um, and, uh, and, and ended up getting persecuted in South Africa for being a foreigner um, because he was taking the jobs from the South Africans. So he fled to the U.S. But what I love is for nine months we were praying and preparing to bring... Daniel's family, his wife and three daughters. And the Horn family, um, which was preparing for them, they couldn't remember the daughters' names. Yadidia, Delame, um, and uh, uh, Narame. Good for you. The parents couldn't remember the names. But their little girl had tea parties with these girls every day who weren't here yet. Nine months before they arrived, she was having tea parties with Dorame, uh, Delame, Narame, Yadidia. I got to see Daniel hold his six-year-old daughter, Narame, for the first time ever. His wife was pregnant when he fled Ethiopia. And he met his six-year-old daughter for the first time at Dulles Airport. And seeing the two of them embrace was one of the most powerful things in ministry I've experienced. But the, the beauty of it is that these, these people are part of our congregation. When we told the congregation that Daniel's family was finally going to be able to come after we've been praying for two years. And we said, look, the deacons don't have $8,000 to fly them here. We need... We need you to give generously to the Deacons Fund. And we got $15,000 that day. And a month later, was able to say, Daniel's family is here. And they stood up and the congregation went nuts because they reunited a family. They brought a family back together. All right. Uh, we want to be sensitive to time. And I think the best way to proceed would be to let uh, you ask questions. I know you said most people, you know, most Americans don't have any influence on this. And also they don't have that firsthand, you know, face-to-face -face reality of like day-in, day-out mm -hmm. political debate. What do you think the role of the church is in that debate about refugees and, um, you know, different categories of immigrants, especially kind of on the more desperate scale? Um, does the church have a role? And if so, what is it? It's hmm. good. Um, I think there's going to be different roles for different people. Um, so some it might be just caring for the individual who's in front of them, uh, whose uh, child goes to your child's school and those kind of things. I think others are going to feel called to try to influence policy. Um, I think this is one area where we can say we have biblical grounds to uh, make a case um, for not necessarily specific policy, but for an attitude towards the immigrant and the refugee. There is a lot in scripture that talks about the widow, the orphan, and the refugee who has come to live among you. Um, 
it's it's always dicey getting into specific policies, um, and, and 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 scripture doesn't dictate policy, but I think it's it it does give us the heart of God and what He says very clearly. Um, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as he says, I want you to love the stranger among you because you were strangers and slaves and foreigners in Egypt. You've experienced the isolation of being separated from your homeland. You've experienced the isolation as Gentile believers being isolated from the promises of God. And you've been brought in by grace alone. And so you should have an attitude of an open heart toward those who are strangers among you. So if I, if I understand you correctly, just to clarify things, you, you've brought this point out now a number of times where by, in a sense, whatever the policies are of, of the country, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't excuse the church, the believer, individual, or the corporate body in regards to its obligation to, to those who are without a home, who are in need, and, and you, you gave the list well. So is that, is, that, is that what I understand? So it, in a sense, the church has the responsibility regardless of whatever the state says. Yeah, and I think the, the church has a responsibility to talk about what moral values are, um, but not to dictate what the policies necessarily should be. We're not a, we're, we're, we're not a theocracy, and so we're not going to form policy that's dictated by Scripture, but it should be guided by universal moral laws. And the moral law that we understand from Scripture is care for the stranger. And so when we have a generous policy that allows people to come to the U.S. who are fleeing persecution, and we do it responsibly because our government has a responsibility to protect our country. And so balancing those two, but with a heart that, um, that, is, that is seeking to care. Besides the moral argument for why we should be welcoming um, refugees, I think there's a very practical reason is that one of the reasons the United States has been such a productive country, why it has produced so much is because, specifically because of immigrants. You think of the um, potato famine in Ireland and there were a whole bunch of guys who threw up their hands and said, I don't know what to do. And there were others who said, I'm gonna get my family to the United States. And the ones who got up out of Sicily or the Africans who were brought here against their will as slaves and yet endured and persisted and, and kept their, 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 their hope alive. The, the immigrant who comes to the United States is a, most often a person of a different caliber and character than the one who just says, I don't know what to do, and just stays home. The ones who find a way to get here, who have that grit and that determination, they make America great. And we need them to keep coming. Um, so I, I was curious, kind of picking back and off what you were just talking about, I mean, obviously the vast majority of refugees are never going to make it to the United States or another um, first world country. Right. Um, you have millions of people who are living in these these refugee camps, as you were talking about, with the, the wife of the man who came here from Congo, who seem to be largely invisible to the world. And I was curious if you had come across or their um, efforts from either the church in America or churches globally to try to take on that 
challenge of ministering to, to people who are in those situations. Yeah, there are there are entire churches that have, have developed within some of these refugee camps. Our denomination has um, ministries going on um, in Greece and in parts of Africa right now working with the refugees on the ground as well as a lot of other denominations. Um, the need is vast. Some of these refugee camps have 50,000 people. Um, some of them now have um, children whose parents fled 30 years prior, and these children were born in a refugee camp, and their country doesn't exist anymore. So imagine there's, there's children in a refugee camp in Tanzania right now whose parents fled a country that no longer exists. And so now, who are you? What status do you have? Um, I, I, I want to tell one last thing about Guy, if I can. Sure. So Guy, our very first refugee, so his father, the journalist back in Burundi, um, did not believe in God. He'd given up any belief in God. Um, his son uh, and his daughters uh, were Christians. Um, and after his father um, learned about um, his son getting out and his son becoming part of his, our church and, and being cared for, um, his, his father wrote us a letter. Um, and this is what his father, Athanase Boyi, wrote to our church. Um, he said, I live in a country which has been torn apart by wars and violence on a horrifying scale. The unspeakable atrocities I have witnessed pushed me to draw the conclusion that God had quit our planet and was no longer mindful of our collective plight. Ladies and gentlemen of Alexandria Presbyterian Church, you have proved me otherwise. Hand on heart, I confess that I have been mistaken and my pessimistic conclusion has been hasty. Definitely, God is still very much around and is overseeing every human undertaking. Your church is a visible sign of the divine presence in the world. Now, that's something we'd like to live up to. I would not say that <laughs> we deserve all that he says. But, but that idea of being a visible sign of the divine presence in the world and if we're a follower of Jesus, I think that's our calling in whatever context God puts us, is are we a visible sign of God's presence in the context we are, wherever we are, whoever God puts in front of us, um, are we going to make him more known by the way we care for others? All right, let's move out of that into prayer together. Father, thank you for not leaving us without testament to your character. Without models, we can see that show us and help us taste and hear and smell and touch and understand what you are like. You are the God who saves remnants, even as through fire. You are the God who restores things that were lost and repairs things that were broken and calls people out of the lands they knew to give them new lives and new lands and a seat at a new table, a table first promised to Abraham, and at whose head sits Jesus. Thank you for the way you do that in a small scale in the lives of the people who find refugee status and who are able to survive these horrific and difficult and brutal circumstances. Thank you for the way your character can be seen and your image can be seen imprinted on the people and the organizations and the churches and the agencies that help facilitate that refugee status. We also realize that as the church in the U.S., we are a gathering of people who are probably all or mostly in this country 
at least in part because you made a way for someone who was not part of this land to come to this land. We ask that you give us hearts that don't take that for granted, that don't forget that you put us in this place at this time for specific reasons. Teach us to see you and recognize you and celebrate your image where we see it in ways that can help make it clearer to other people. We pray these things in the name of your Son, who you sent from heaven here to lead us as refugees to the new kingdom when it comes. Amen. All right, thank you for being with us this week. If any of this was helpful or encouraging to you, you can help us out by going to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's branded as now and leave us a positive rating and review. Four stars or more, people. Come on. If this wasn't helpful or encouraging to you, we're making this podcast in good faith, I swear, and we want to improve it for you. So instead of leaving us a bad review, feel free to email me at rick at christiancivics.org and let me know what your concerns are or how you think this can be improved. Hold off on the bad review until we've had some time to get better at this, okay? Please? All right, now show notes. If you visit our website, christiancivics.org, and go to the podcast section or to the blog section, there will be a few ways you can follow up on this week's episode. We'll have links to some articles Pastor Chuck Garriott has written for us in the past, as well as to an earlier episode of the podcast he appeared on. We'll also have a link to his book, Prayers for Trump, which uses President Trump as a case study in how to pray for your elected officials using the Proverbs. We'll also have a link to his organization, Ministry to State, who we're all big fans of here. If you want to learn more about Pastor Chris Six, we'll have a link to his church, Alexandria Presbyterian Church in Alexandria, Virginia. And we'll have a link to the book he quoted from at the end there. It's called Tangible, Making God Known Through Deeds of Mercy and Words of Truth. If you want to get our upcoming bonus episode, you can do that by making a one-time or recurring donation of any size to the Center for Christian Civics at christiancivics.org. And be sure to visit us online to learn more about our work, empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum.